This is Booth One coming to you from our luxurious studios high atop beautiful Evanston, Illinois. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and you've come to the right place for the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Hey, sitting in with me today in the guest host chair is one of our favorite Booth One sidekicks and guests. Mr. Paul Strolley is back. Uh, the crowd goes wild. Yes. Well, I bring them with me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is four now. This is your fourth time. Is it time. four? Yeah. I, I, I went back and counted. It doesn't seem like four, and I say that with all compliment. It seems like I've only done it like once or twice. Seems like four to me. Does it? I figured. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> well, listeners will recall that Paul is an actor, writer, director, and producer. Hey, you're just coming off a film, uh, yeah. an indie film shoot of a film called Wake in California. Yes, we That's, just finished that, it. Let me rephrase that. It's not Wake in California. Right. <laughs> you were shooting in California, California. a film called the film Wake. The film is called Wake, And yes. you were in that movie as was, well, as well in, as being a producer. I was in that, yeah, as an executive producer and, and have a small role in it. And it went really well. Shooting a feature-length film in 16 days is no uh-huh. small task. It was funny because the director, Cirrus Miracor, after four or five days of 18 or 16, 18 hour days, now I know why independent filmmaking at this level is a younger man's game. He said, because, you know, if it was three or five years later, I don't know if I could do this. And I'm like, Cyrus, I'm eight years older than you are. How yeah, do you think how, how old? He's in his 40s, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. And we're especially delighted at the two uh, people, of, of course, James Denton, an old friend of mine from Chicago Theater Days, who's on now sure. from yeah. Desperate Housewives, among many other things. But what we're most excited about is it's the first film of this brilliant uh, comic named Joe Coy, who has a Netflix special out right now, and it was his first film, I sort of accidentally became a de facto acting coach for him because he had just said, hey, whatever you got, it's my first time. And he's a completely egoless person. He was just wonderful. He really hit it out of the park. So we're very excited to have him in it. Now, though you had a small role, you had big sideburns. You had these mutton chop, like um, wolverine wolverine type. I had mutton mutton chops chops that, you know, because anything to make my nose more prominent, anything (laughs) that will point that arrow. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Whose choice was that? I would forget about that. Well, what we decided, what Cirrus decided was that because we were shooting in Long Beach, California, he wanted to do a nod to Long Beach as me being a local because the film takes place in a funeral home and I'm the, the sole employee of the funeral home, a guy who does everything, does the pickups because the woman who runs the and funeral And the embalming? Home, no, and, and as well, yeah. Does all um, of that. Yeah, You're, well, I, I don't do it in the film. It's not seen, but it's just assumed that I do all the tasks that Molly does, but the woman who runs the funeral home is an agoraphobe, so she never leaves. You can't run a business like that, so my character was created to fill that gap. But Cirrus wanted to do a little nod to Long Beach, and there is this whole, like, rockabilly biker culture, uh, greaser culture in Long Beach, that they're, they're older guys, and they have gray hair, but they have the white walls, and they ride their Harleys, and they do, so I got a Harley. And so that was sort of our little... Awesome. Just a- eccentric character from, from local, you know, to sort of flavor the film. I assume yeah. it's in the editing stage now. It uh, is. Post-production. Yes. And we can look forward to seeing it on the uh, festival circuit when? Hopefully uh, in, in the spring. In the spring, yeah. Fantastic. We're trying to get it done. They're actually trying to get, you can submit to some of the larger festivals, Cannes and, and Sundance and all this, as a work. I'm, in, not, I'm in, not going to Cannes. <laughs> You're not? No. Oh, you won't? I'd go to Toronto. You'd go to Toronto. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. This is Can Jersey. It's one end. Uh, it's a much shorter. Oh, it's one it's end. A hell of a lot easier to get into. Let it's me tell one you. end. Yeah. 
and not to digress, but I just wanted to it's mention that, that. Uh, Tony sorry. and Tina's is still going yes. strong. Yes. You're doing yes. very well there. Yes. It's extended beyond anyone's wildest dreams, <laughs> I assume, yeah. uh, from well, what your original plan was. Yeah, the summer has been tough because the summer in Chicago is just mm-hmm. anemic, getting people into a theater. Sure. We've trimmed it way down. We're only doing one show a week at that venue. Yeah, yeah. But one, we're already looking at the fall and the groups and the things that we're going to be back up to two, three shows a week. Fantastic. I can't so. wait to get back. I got to go see it again. Oh, uh, please. Now that I've experienced it once, I want to see how it's developed. Some amazing new cast members, too. Rory Zacker, who played Dominic in the production you saw, is, has stepped up into Tony. And then the lovely Conchetta Rose, who's been with the Tony and Tina's family for about 12 years, has played just about every yeah. female role in the show. She's our new team. And they're just, they're hitting out of the park. They're Fantastic. Really Can't wait to see it. Listeners, you've probably heard a laughter in the background. <laughs> Uh, there it is again. What, what is that noise, Paul? I don't want to talk about it. I thought I was the only one who was hearing it. Along with me and Paul today, we have a special guest in the booth. Mark Larson is an educator and writer living right here in Evanston, not far from our studios. He is an oral historian with a collection of interviews about our country and a project called, correct me if I'm wrong, American Stories Continuum. Yes. And uh, even more fascinating is the project and book that you're working on now, something called, and this will interest you, Paul, Ensemble Chicago, The Making of a Theater Town. And is it an oral biography or an oral history? That's an interesting distinction. I originally called it an oral biography. That's that's where I started. And I I went back to oral history. But it basically is. It's a narrative that starts in 1953, and it goes straight up to the present. And its intention is to tell the story the life story of uh, Chicago theater. Both Paul and I have been involved in the Chicago theater for years and years, and I'm sure we know a lot of the people you're talking about. I'm going to start out with a question for you, though, Mark, from Studs Terkel. Mm -hmm. Who are you? <laughs> Did you read the interview? That was his first question to me. That, that yeah, apparently yeah. that was his first question to you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you? <laughs> My name's Mark Larson. I I started out in theater in Chicago. That's really what I wanted to do as a kid. I even dropped out of college to give it a shot. As an actor or I, I wanted to write. I wanted to write plays. And just by happen chance, I had a Second City Children's Theater, Joe Forsberg there, who has a rich history, too, it turns out, it took a play of mine, a children's play I'd written in college, and they did it for about six months there. George Went was like the lead in it. George Went. George Went. Of Cheers fame. Of yeah. Cheers fame. What who, was the name of the uh, the play? It was, um, I'm embarrassed to, to say it. But oh, it was, don't be it embarrassed. Was, it was a children's show. I just want to frame it that way. It was called The Dubbing of Sir Saul by King Benjamin. And then okay. so you're, you're laughing at it. Only because that was unexpected. I, I thought it would be like my missing <laughs> oh, piece. Oh, or... no, I was going to say, it was, it was far more regal than I expected yeah. it to be. Yeah, very royal. Oh, well, thank you. Maybe I should be proud of it. George played the king in it. So that made me think, gee, I could really get into this Chicago theater scene thing. And then I got a call at one point from Bill Norris who said, uh, he's at Victory Gardens and they'd like to do one of my one-acts. Another wonderful Chicago theater. It's a wonderful Chicago theater. Still in existence. This is when they were over in, I think, what's called the now now called the Metro over by Wrigley Field. So they did that. And then I thought, hey, I, I, I could really do this and try creating a theater company of my own, and it just fizzled. 
and then um, <laughs> as they are wont to do, as, as, as most you know, of the, yeah, all, all, there's so many. <laughs> After that, I uh, got in with uh, Bert Tilstrom, who had done. Um, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie for years and years and years on television. Very uh, oh, wow. well-known uh, puppet show. Yeah. It was Who, a national show. It originated Fran was not a puppet. No, But the other two were. Yeah. <laughs> it originated here, Kukla, Fran, yeah. and Ollie? I yeah. knew Bozo did, but I didn't know that... Uh, Garfield Goose as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It was here, NBC. So I got in with him, and I did some shows. I did four shows in a row with him at the Goodman Theater, across from the Christmas Carol, when the Christmas Carol was just getting started. And were we they did. also children's shows of no, that style? No, see, that's the thing. In fact, we had to put an age restriction on it, not because there was coarse material, but because he didn't like kids making noise in the, <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> A man after my <laughs> own heart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but his material was very sophisticated, and it was commentary on what was going on in the world and very human in its interaction. And he did a lot of improvising, too. So we did that each Christmas and then we did three specials for NBC and then the Kennedy Center and some other road things. Mm-hmm. During that time, I met the woman who became my wife, and we ended up with twins, and I needed a real job. And so that pulled me out of the theater, and I went into education. I got a job. You were a, a high school English teacher for school. quite some time. Yeah, I was, for 14 years. Also the director of education at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Wow. Did you enjoy that job? I loved it. Yeah. Before that, I had been at the Field Museum, and I really enjoyed that. Did the animals learn very quickly? That was my question. It's like, because I'm trying to imagine. The elephants never forget. (laughs) No, they don't. You know, I never thought about that, but you would have to have some sort of form. If you were going to have school groups come through, I'm assuming there was just sort of a formal curriculum for school groups that would come in. Was that a a large part of it? That was more so at at the Field Museum, and it was looser at at the You were also education director for the Field Museum for a while. I was a manager there, yeah. Manager. Uh, Under Mm -hmm. the director, yeah. That was there for four years. That was a little more formal. But at, at the zoo, it really was creating experiences and prepping the docents and that kind of thing. But what a great hybrid for you, because here you have something that is educational, but you also have this wonderful theatrical history in presenting things and retaining interest and focus. There's a very strong set of theatrical skills is needed yeah, to keep right. the attention of young, young people. So it seems like you were perfectly suited for it. I had a ball. I really did. I loved my years at the field and loved my years at the zoo, too. You never worked at the aquarium, did you? No, no, no. (laughs) I I bring that up because I have to follow up on a story we did a few episodes ago. Bear with me for a moment, Mark and Paul. Did you guys read about the Olympic champion swimmer and maybe the greatest swimmer of all time, Michael Phelps, on the Discovery Channel? He uh, was going to race a great white shark and see if he could beat that time. Right. Well, the program aired last weekend. It was an hour long. It was absolutely fascinating. Now, you might ask, were they in the same pool? Did they jump in at the same time? Now, that would have been interesting. Yes, that would have been. If he'd lost a limb of some sort. <laughs> like the porn star that we talked about when I was on the show <laughs> exactly. who got bit by the shark. You got a shark fetish on this show. I do. I yeah. do. Well, I, I, I hate them uh, as godless killing machines. 
<laughs> and I, I'm fearful of them, and I'm pretty sure they exist not only in the ocean everywhere, but in Lake Michigan. <laughs> I, I don't go in deep water. And so he, he eventually, he lost by two seconds. Uh, two two seconds. Right. You go, well, how did they figure all of that out? Well, what they did was they went into the wild and they figured out mechanisms in order to time the sharks. How fast can a shark swim straight on? And they did several different kinds, mm. hammerheads, a sand shark, and a great white shark. Mm. Well, the techniques they used to measure them were essentially... Let's throw some bait in the water. Let's get a guy on a boat and then speed away as fast as you can and see if the shark can catch you. Well, the, the shark did catch them and, well, havoc ensued, but they at least got some timings. So what they did is they did a virtual reality type of thing and they built this big fin for Michael Phelps to attach to his feet, uh, very much like a shark's tail, so that he could generate more speed because right. most of his speed comes from his rather large feet and his leg muscles. So they built this and then they put them side by side in this virtual reality thing on an overhead shot and had them swim. Well, it was thrilling. It was so exciting. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> I was hoping that he would find a way to beat the odds. Well, he did beat the sand shark. He did not beat the hammerhead shark by about a second and a half and the great white beat him out by two seconds. By two seconds. So I wanted to follow up with our listeners because I talked about this story and, and recommended them uh, watching it. So they're, they're pretty fast, but they're only fast for short periods of time. Like so cheetahs. If you can keep cheetahs are the same thing. Very much so. Oh, yeah. Cheetahs fastest animal, but only for like eight seconds, like yeah. at that peak. Because, yeah. yeah. Big spurts. Yeah. Big spurts. Let's go back to Mark's um, book here, Ensemble Chicago, The Making of a Theater Town. How did you put this together? This isn't just you writing a history of the theater uh, in Chicago, which is amazing and long and fascinating. You actually interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people in all walks of the theatrical world and the arts world about this. Tell us about some of those interviews. Sure. It started much smaller, as things like this <laughs> must we actually, when I was talking to my publisher about it in the beginning, we talked about, let's get seven representative companies and really go into depth on them. But what I found was that they're so intertwined and they're so interdependent that that became the story, really. And you couldn't flesh that out just by doing, you know, a handful of things. So I ended up talking to over 300 people. And one of the things I really wanted to put across was it's everybody contributing to this. This isn't about just David Mamet and Michael Shannon and the people that you always hear about and Bill Macy and all, all those folks. George Went. And George Went. <laughs> that it, it's all these people. I, I recently talked to Joe Drummond, who for over 40 years, you're nodding, over 40 years was the stage manager at the Goodman Theater. Sound designers, uh, Rob Milburn and Michael Bodine, for example. So it's, a, it's across the board, trying to say everybody is a part of the ensemble. Everybody works together very much as an ensemble. Who were some of the more interesting people that you spoke with? I know recently you spoke with Joyce Piven, yeah. who's probably been around from the very, very, very beginning in the 50s of when the real theater movement started in Chicago. 
In fact, let me even ask you this. Why Chicago? What was it about this town that attracted so many theater artists and so many that wanted to start their own companies? I mean, why not Cleveland? Why not L.A.? Why not? Well, Minneapolis has a fairly thriving theatrical scene, but why not them? I have a theory on that, actually, and it's a theory that I employed or thought about when I came here after college. I went to college in upstate New York, and you have a city that has this rich cultural base anyway, not even theatrically. We just talk about art and music and architecture and all of these other things. So there's already a very fertile creative mindset here. But then after that, to me, it came down to dollars and cents and size of the pool. Uh-huh. Because after we left school, there were a whole bunch of people that said, oh, I'm going to go to New York, and a whole bunch of people said, I'm going to go to L.A. Well, you go to L.A., and you're right out of college, and you have no money. You have to have a car, because you have to have a car to do anything in Los Angeles. And if you go to New York, you have to work three jobs to pay the rent. So you can't do storefront theater as much as you'd like, because you don't have. it's just monetarily an impossibility. And Chicago is that great hybrid of the two. You can live better with less money in Chicago as a starving mm. artist. You don't need a car. Because uh, you know, of re- our uh, extensive and fairly reliable mass transit Exactly. System. There's so many people think that theater in Chicago started with Steppenwolf. <laughs> it was, of course, huge, but it wasn't. There was so much more going on before that. Sure. So, I, I, so. You know, even as far back as Playwrights Theater Club mm-hmm. in the early 1950s, did you talk to anybody who was involved with that group or the Compass Players, which is a subsequent, yes, talk- they grew into that? I've talked to both groups, and that's that's really where I marked the beginning of the book, is 1953, with Playwrights Theatre Club, because really there was very little going on except for the touring companies coming through, some summer stocks, some uh, community theatre, and there really wasn't a lot going on. And so I, I started in 1953, but what's interesting about what you said, too, is I was going to start the book in the 70s with Steppenwolf, as I was first started looking at it, and then... Gary, I met Joyce Pivot, and I, I went up to her apartment just to talk to her about what she's doing now. One of the first things she's told me was she's afraid the history of playwrights is going to get lost. Huh. Playwrights the, Theater Club. Play, yeah. yeah, right. Playwrights Theater Club, right, yeah. is going to get lost. She said there was really no recordings. There's no video of it. You know, There's no filming. of. And so she said a lot of people think our history starts with Second City. And she said, but we can start now. That's how she put it, and that's kind of how the book opens. So it's Joyce Piven who pulled me back to 1953. It totally changed the shape of the book. And so what I've done now is, partly just to honor her, but because she's so much a part of the story, is the book is bookended with Joyce Piven. Ah. So it begins with her coming to Chicago, and then it ends with a conversation I had with her and Jen Green, who is now basically taking the reins from her. And what that's like, and that's where it ends. At the Pivot so, Theater Workshop. The, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I should be more clear. Yeah. That's quite all right. I, I'll, I'll, I'll clear you up. <laughs> You're <laughs> doing a good job. That's I'm what hosts are for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, I have no job at all. <laughs> I just sit here. And so I did talk to, I, I talked to almost everybody who's still around. Playwrights Theater Club. I talked to Joyce, obviously, several times. I talked to Barbara Harris, to David Shepard, who was part of that. Most of the Sills family, Paul Sills family, Ed Asner, and then going into Compass, I talked to David Shepard, who really is the one who started that and Mm -hmm. then invited Paul Sills to be a part. And out of Compass Players grew Second City. Yes. 
our much beloved and prized uh, improv company here in Chicago. And the the Nichols May period of Second City. Was that like 61, 62? Nichols and May really weren't part of Second City. They had left before that. They were part of Compass. Yes. And then they went to New York and things happened very quickly for them. Alan Arkin, Alan Alan Alda, Avery Schreiber, they were all uh, Second City early on, yes? Yes. Different aspects of it. Right. But Alan Arkin came in six months after it first opened. It opened in the late 59 and then in 60. Alan Arkin came. He was in a Compass Players thing out in St. Louis, and Paul Sills saw him and said, why don't you come to Chicago? That's what I was curious about, that gap of, from, from 53 to when Second City was called Second City. 53 was Playwrights, Playwrights, Theater, Club. Playwrights Theater Club. Fif- none of these things lasted that long. 53 <laughs> to 55 was Playwrights Theater Club. Yeah. And then Compass was a year and a half. Wow. Which is astonishing. That's all? I, everybody says that, because I think its impact was just so huge. And it mm. formed these amazing careers. Shelley Berman, too, came out of there. Yeah. So, so much happened in that 18 months. But, it, but that was it, 18 months. Alan Arkin oh. has been quoted as saying about life and the theater in general and the art of performance, uh, in the final analysis, it's all improvisation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this magical wild horse of a universe that gallops by us and through us and around us and every once in a while allows us to grab onto its mane for a moment and join in its dance, but it won't be tamed or conquered. That, <laughs> wow. You don't and you really know that was extemporaneous. I want to go back to something you said, Mark, about in the sort of early days in the 50s, 60s, when these small companies were just beginning to get going. And as you say, they didn't last long. Chicago was always known as a great touring town. We would get all the big touring shows for a week at least. You have some fascinating stories about, as a young man, you would go to these Broadway-type shows, and you used to sneak up on stage after the show in order to try to meet the stars? Or at least get a feel for being on stage? Yeah, that's what I used to do. It, <laughs> it, it feels so nerdy, but I, I just loved theater. And this was at a time when you could do that, too. And I, uh, I basically, 95% shy person. I'm very shy, so I have no idea why I got the nerve to do it. But it, when a show was over, I just always find a way to crawl up onto the stage or find a passage and then just go back there. And, and you met some very interesting and famous I people did. that way. Cheetah Rivera, I, I met understand. Cheetah Rivera that way. Did you just like knock on her door, just see her in I the hallway? I waited for her, and all of a sudden she there was a stairway, and she came up the stairway. And I said, think how creepy that would be now. You know, <laughs> What's interesting you know, was she wasn't performing there. She was doing the <laughs> same thing. She was looking for work. So she <laughs> Cheetah was looking for work. You know, we've had Cheetah on the show. Oh, did She's you? been That's a guest right. of ours. I interviewed, yeah. I interviewed Cheetah as well. In, in oh, yeah, sure. House, yeah. Uh, do you remember the show you saw her in? Uh, Sweet Charity. And that was that era. That's right. I said, um, I've been waiting for you. And she said, you're waiting for me? Just like that, she is and, the sweetest yeah. thing. Oh uh, yeah, you're right. That wouldn't that wouldn't fly today at all. Oh, can you yeah. imagine? You yeah. couldn't get back there. No, no. Well, no. Try to get up on the stage at Hamilton. See what yeah. happens. Oh, right. <laughs> see how long yeah. you last. Yeah. Pull back a stump. You know. <laughs> <laughs> who else did you meet in your um, travels that way? I remember meeting Jeremy Clyde, who you might not remember. Chad and Jeremy. There were this. Singers from the 60s. Yeah, sure. Chad and Jeremy. I stupidly asked him, what's, what's Chad doing now? Come 
<laughs> well, that was a nice <laughs> great interview question, isn't that it? Is, that is a great interview question. Yeah, yeah, who is Chad Studs? <laughs> who, who is, is Chad? Uh, was the answer, was he in jail or something? Or I don't, you don't remember I, don't rem- I think he. Well, you have to know because you said you stupidly asked him that. <laughs> right. So we have to know what the answer to the question was. I think he just kind of blew it off. He was very sweet. <laughs> Celeste Holm, you met? Celeste Holm. Do you remember what uh, show she was doing? Mame. She was doing Mame. Uh, something I was fascinated by as well is, and tell me how this happened to you, Mark. You were once, for a week or so, the personal driver for Miss Carol Channing. Um, <laughs> when she was in town doing, well, Hello, Dolly, at the Airy Crown Theater. Now, the Airy Crown must have been pretty new back then. It was very new. How did, did you get that job, and what was she like in the back seat? I uh, assume she sat in the back. She sat in the back with her husband, Charles Lowe. Very sweet. It was, it was interesting. The way I, f- I got the job was an, a friend of mine didn't want it. And he said, here's this opportunity, do you want to do it? And I was this backstage nerd, and, and so that just seemed incredibly inviting to me. Sure. And so, yeah, I did that for however long she was here. But I'd pick her up. It was on the Gold Coast. Where I, she was staying? Where she was staying. Mm. And I'd pick her up there, drive her to the theater, anywhere else she wanted to go, and then drive her back at the end of the, end of the night. I have a terrible sense of direction. Um, Which is is what you look for in a driver. Yeah, I'm glad they did ask me, how's your sense of direction? And this is well before Google Maps or anything like that. Uh, Yeah, oh yeah. And so I I literally would listen to her and her husband talk about plans they had for the next day and try to figure out, okay, where are they going and so forth. And then I would figure out how to get there and I would drive it out for myself if she was going to an interview at WGN or whatever it was. So I I did a lot of that, but all of a sudden, one day she had some health issue, and I had to go to a doctor that I had no idea where it was. It took me a long time to find it, and then I got lost coming back. And I remember her at one point going, scenic route, huh, Mark? (laughs) Like, <laughs> I can just picture you driving around, driving around the south like side, looking for <laughs> the Airy Crown Theater with Carol Channing in the back. It was awful. I think we make her right here. <laughs> Don't, yes. don't we meet her, right? You know my character. I told the Carol Channing story on the air, didn't you, I? You did, I indeed. Did, yeah. She was lovely. She was a lovely person. I don't know if your experience she was. She was very but, lovely, but yeah. she was. I was with her in very down moments, is which is kind of what I cherished. I loved the drives back because it was kind of quiet. They were talking about the the show, and they were talking about what am I going to say? I'm Mike Douglas. And she hated the airy crowd, too. Because well, she couldn't get any kind of reaction. She could not get a read at all from what was happening. It's a long, big barn of a hall. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. I remember seeing the Carpenters there when I was a youngster. <laughs> oh, oh, I tell you, that, and that's such a With factor, a full too. orchestra, I did stand up in a baseball stadium. Once. Oh, my God. How was and, that? Uh, it was just like you'd think. <laughs> Take uh, my wife, my wife, my, my wife, wife, my wife. Please, please, please. please. <laughs> You've talked to a lot of people about this book, this ensemble Chicago that you're putting together, and it's an oral history or an oral biography. We have some overlap. I mentioned Cheetah yeah. Rivera. We've had Michael Halberstam, uh, artistic director of Writers Theater on the show, actor Tyrone Phillips, mm-hmm. Sean Graney from The Hypocrites has been on the show. We've had David Catlin, 
Charna Halpern, Evan Linder. In fact, I just went to see a reading of Evan Linder's new play called Joe and Liv. Have you mm. heard about his new play? Did I we have, talk about yeah. that in any yeah. way? This is a new play that he is uh, working on. And we went to a reading of it at the Goodman Theater. And Joe and Liv is about Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland, sisters. Oh. Joan is no longer with us, but Olivia just celebrated her 101st yes. birthday. Yeah. And she lives in Paris. This play takes place on a particular Christmas holiday when Olivia goes to Joan's apartment in New York to spend Christmas with her and her niece and nephew. And she brings her then husband from Paris and her son from Paris. And boy, was it hilarious was it? at uh, times. Uh. I can't I can't wait to see it in some sort of production. Did you see uh, Bahalia, Mississippi? Did Bahalia, you? Mississippi is maybe my favorite play it's that I've seen in the play. last... Decade. Yeah, that's really, really? go places. Yeah. That's a beautiful play. Wonderful play. Yeah. Did you enjoy it as much as I did, Mark? I didn't know what to expect from it, but uh, I was completely taken with it, and that's what made me want to talk to Evan, too. Tyrone directed that. We had them on the show. You had them together. Uh, we had them together on oh, the show because we saw it, yeah. and we like, well, we've got to talk to these yeah. guys. They're the, yeah. I think we named the show The Next Big Thing <laughs> because I think they're both going to be The Next Big Thing. Tell us about one of the more fascinating people that you interviewed. You mentioned Joyce Piven. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Ten come to mind. <laughs> sure. Um, I'll just give you a couple. I recently talked to Alan Arkin, and when I got off the phone, I went into my wife, and it just came out of my mouth. I said, I've talked to a lot of people. That one was special for me. Huh. Alan Arkin, he has such rich history with Second City, but I can remember as a kid when all of a sudden this guy who... We thought of as a Chicagoan, but he's not a Chicagoan, is in a, a, a movie called The Russians Are Coming. I remember a time when you could sit through a movie over and over again and they wouldn't kick you out. And that's a film so nice they named it twice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I kept watching and watching and watching that. And, so yeah. I would, and he's such an engaging performer, too. Yeah. And then Heart is a Lonely Hunter and Wait Until Dark. I was stunned when I got an email back that said, sure, let's do this on Monday. But he said, but don't ask me anything I've already been asked. So be sure to read my memoir and don't ask me anything that's in it because that gets tedious. Oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> talk about pressure. Yeah, yeah exactly. I did, Interview pressure. I felt a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so I think my pleasure at the end when I went to my wife was commensurate with my anxiety prior to. And at the end, I said, I can't, just on a personal note, I really appreciate this. This meant a lot to me. And I, he said, well, you've done your homework. I'm glad to do it. Well, um, that's high praise. So, you know, he's written this memoir. I don't know if that's what you were, you were citing there. But it's a neat memoir. It's called An Improvised Life. If I can just addendum the thing about Alan Arkin, you know, for an actor of his skill set, mm -hmm. being the Im improviser that we all know he is, but so much of improv is wordplay and verbal gymnastics and things like that. And then you see something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. He has little or nothing to say in that. But yet he steals every scene that he's in. He's just so charismatic. He just sits there. Uh, Ed Harris is talking, 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 talking about the hall with the phones, and they're going to go in, they're going to do this, and they're going to do that, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think the only thing that Alan Arkin says in the whole thing is, they, they, they come here, and they, they... <laughs> 
They take the phones. That is like literally the only thing. He says. And and it's just a repeat of yeah. what's already. And yet it's just like you can't take your eyes off the so guy. The natural charisma of that man is just yeah. Oh, who doesn't love Alan Arkin? And one of my favorite films and one of my favorite performances of his is The In Laws. Oh yeah, Serpentine, <laughs> Serpentine, a Z. <laughs> Don't and, say anything about the scars. <laughs> and and also one that is rarely talked about, but Catch Twenty Two. Oh, yes, that's You know, right. Catch-22 is just... Mike so, Nichols know. directed it. You sir? Yeah. Uh, sure. A Mike Nichols film. Do you guys have any favorite Second City review names? Oh, you know, yes. Oh, there's one that wins for me just immediately. Hands Bru- down? Yes. Jean-Paul Sartre and Ringo. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's the best one ever. Jean-Paul Sartre and Ringo is the best one ever. I, I think one of my favorites is Freud Slipped Here. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to uh, follow up on something as well, and you might find this very interesting, Mark. Do you, I won't find it interesting you, at all. You will, <laughs> you will, because several episodes ago, Paul, you were on the show as uh, our, our guest host, and we had our friend Kevin Tice on. Yes. And you and I and he played a 36-question type of game. It was uh, from something called the Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Well, apparently it's 36 (laughs) questions that you... It's just as exciting as it sounds. (laughs) You and and a partner, if you're out to dinner or if you're dating or even if it's your wife or whatever, there's a series of 36 questions that you ask each other. And you answer them, and it's supposed to enhance your relationship. And after each section, you're supposed to spend four minutes of silence <laughs> staring into the other person's that eyes. That sounds horrible. And yeah. in, no, and it's in, a busman's tour of hell, a, oh is what it is. And, and in, in, in these 36 questions, you're kind of meant to, like, fall in love. Well, I didn't fall in love with you that day. I was already <laughs> in love with you, Paul. Uh, but we, we played that, and I, I have to follow up on that. There is a new podcast called 36 Questions. Why is this interesting? Because it's a musical. It's Ah. a musical. Yes, uh, starring Jonathan Groff of Frozen and Hamilton fame. He played King George in the original production of Hamilton. And a lovely actress named Jessica Shelton. She was in a play called Hades Town in New York off Broadway. Hades Town. And uh, this is written by Ellen Winter and Chris Littler. They're the composers, the writers, and directors. And it's fully a podcast. Now, I've listened to Act One, and Act Two was just published a few days ago, and I've listened to Act Two. There's Mm. an Act Three coming. And what do they do on this? Well, they ask each other the 36 questions. But it's a fully scripted musical. (laughs) They don't sing the questions. They ask the questions. It sounds like an old radio show with sound effects and music. And they've got wonderful voices. And there's a duck. This duck (laughs) quacks every once in a while. Uh, the, The conceit is that she is obsessed with recording almost everything that happens. So she's always recording stuff on her cell phone. So she's recording all of these conversations she's having with her Well, it's her husband. I don't want to give too much away, but they're estranged for reasons that become immediately clear at the very (laughs) 
top of this musical. With question number one. And she suggests, as they kind of move along in this separation that they're having, she suggests, well, we did the 36 questions when we first got married. Well, let's do the 36 questions again. Mm-hmm. And I bet that at the end of it, you'll be back in love with me, and I'll be back in love with you, and everything will be rosy. I think at the end of Act 2, they're on question 19. So it's <laughs> Now, but what do they do right with the four-minute interlude, though? They skip the four-minute interlude. Uh, thank the Lord not for only that. is four minutes of silence not good for a podcast, it's really <laughs> not good for, for a musical. musical. Yeah, I was just going to say. Well, what, that's what's an example good. question? I'm so well, curious. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you should ask that question. <laughs> yep. We'll do a couple of the ones that we didn't do between us, Paul, because, well, we've done them. Okay. In set one, and these are really easy ones, what would constitute a perfect day for you? And you're supposed to describe to the other person what your perfect day would be. Mark, what would a perfect day look like for you? Oh, God, this is going to sound awful. But I'll tell you the first thing that came to mind is that I got a lot of work done. (laughs) That would be perfect. I would love it. And I got to sit outside with my dog and my wife and got a lot done. Wow. That that sounds like a great day. And felt good about, about it, too. What about you, Paul? What would it constitute a perfect day it would, for you? Uh, I find that I'm missing the motorcycle a great deal, having sold it in Los Angeles and then coming back here and realizing that it's not like Los Angeles here. It's not just as much of a car culture. I've found that it's really the only meditation I have. It's the only way to really go zen on something because I stay so focused. I, like, I can't not think about something, but I can displace the thoughts, and that's self-preservation that's is a, a great way to, 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 to displace the thoughts. So I always think about to have, like, a nice cruising motorcycle and do, like, a Hawaiian road or, or just, like, country lanes or something like that, just slow country lanes where you just don't really have to think too much to clear the With head. the leaves falling, maybe? Mm. The autumn, an autumn ride in New England on a two-wheeler would be pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a perfect day for me would be sleeping medium late, <laughs> getting up, and heading to the golf course and playing around with three very good friends and having a great laugh. Coming back home, barbecuing some steaks, sitting around just chatting, talking about film, and just staying up kind of late and sitting out uh, much like you in your backyard or on your deck and having a good time with friends. That would be a wonderful, perfect day. As we move on to section two, <laughs> the questions wait, get a bit more difficult. Wait, let's just wait three minutes and 48 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit. We're going we're gonna to pause and stare into each other's eyes for <laughs> a while. And then we'll edit it out. And then I'm going to edit okay. it out. So uh, stand by. Another question. That <laughs> We're back. <laughs> We're back. And boy, do I feel a little slimy. I need a, a, I, yeah, I, I I need need a, a shower. I need a Karen Silkwood shower. Is what <laughs> <laughs> Spray you down. Yeah. Here's a good question. Uh, how close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? Now, remember, this is a question that's being asked by two people either considering getting into a relationship or already into a relationship. I think it was happy. I don't think it was happier than most. It was a, it was a big balance with my dad because my dad's an old school old school Italian Italian immigrant came here with nothing 19 years old so when you look how he was raised and how hard his life was war torn Italy and all that wrapping lunch kits for Nazis and things like this actual elements of his life I realized that I did pretty well with him mm-hmm. but we didn't really like one another at mm-hmm. all growing up we had a lot of problems and we like one another a lot more now 
Uh, but then the other side of that is then there was my mother who sort of became de facto peacekeeper and uh, yeah, so you have that yeah. side. So not especially warm. It's a weird. Not especially warm, but grateful for the experience and what we arrived at. Sure. That's the nice way to put it. Yeah. How about you, Mark? Where, uh, what was your upbringing like? I'm going to pass on the comparison part because I have no idea. Sure. But it was very warm and, and friendly and it was a very family-centric Kind of kind of group. And yeah. St- still always get together and. How many siblings? There's four of us. Okay, so yeah. a good sized family. Yeah. yeah. I would say for me the um, the orphanage was a warm place. <laughs> was it? Yeah, it was very warm, and I felt very close to a couple of the kids until, of course, they got adopted and had to be taken away. Um, <laughs> no, I would say my childhood was about as happy as anybody See, else's. I'm sitting here like, I yeah. really don't want to make a joke about this. I, Yes, because we thought it might be true. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put you guys through that. Let's. I'm going to do one more question. You can't skip. You you can't skip it. Yeah, yeah. I said my childhood was probably about as happy as anybody's. That's all you got. Yeah, you know, it was a middle (laughs) middle class, average Catholic upbringing. Not too many highs, not too many lows. Okay. I think it was about average. We weren't particularly a warm family. I would say we were a tepid family. This is why we you've made up the orphanage story. Yeah. We, were a, we were a lukewarm family. That's what we were. Lukewarm. <laughs> 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 I'm going to move on to a question from Section 3. And as we said on our last show, where the prizes double. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Hang on. Okay, we're back. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that eye contact is getting harder and harder. I was just staring at your forehead the whole time. <laughs> Is that a ball joke? Yeah, no. Uh, you know how sensitive I am it about very that. very off-putting to stare at your eyes that long. We don't actually... I was feeling stirring. We don't actually need to answer <laughs> these, but I'll, I'll just give you a taste of what the third section is all about. When did you last cry in front of another person mm. or by yourself? Another question is, tell your partner something that you like about them already. Hmm. That's Good. very telling. That's very telling about a person because you just what you observe in someone else, not to comment on, but the fact that you observed that. I, I, that would be a great question for a first date. No, don't really you think? Yeah. yeah, or a later date that yeah. you already like about them. Hmm. And if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? And... More importantly, why haven't you told them yet? Oh, Again, that's, that's just a terrifying I know. question. I know. And it's a little deep for our podcast <laughs> here. But I wanted to give you a flavor of that. Anyway, if you're interested in this musical, download 36 questions. That's the numeral 36 questions on whatever podcast app you have on your phone. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. The music is very clever. The two of them are immensely appealing. The duck is hilarious. <laughs> I just I just imagine this thing being performed live in the theater and just like act one, 18 questions. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. The podcast is the musical. Yeah. It's not as if they're trying to write this musical and put it on radio in the That's hopes that maybe yeah. you will come up with uh, $4 million in order to mount a production of it. This is the end product. This is the thing. Yeah. And it really throws down a gauntlet to other composers to ask them to explain Explore the possibility of avoiding the hassle and the expense of getting a production mounted. We could do one right here at this table. Yeah. Get writing, Paul. <laughs> I 
I will. I, I, I introduced will. you as an actor, writer, and oh, producer. Me. My you get on that. Duties. I want to go back to something we talked about with just family a moment ago. Your father, Roy, who is still alive, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, don't say that with great surprise, but he's probably in his 90s. 98. Yeah, 88. We're, we're going to celebrate his birthday. Yeah. Now, he was a journalist as well, and yeah. he traveled all over the world interviewing people. He was the, was he the religion editor for the Chicago Sun-Times yes. for many, many years? Yes. Tell me about him a little bit. Uh, tell me, did you accompany him on some of these interviews and some of the people that you and he encountered? I kind of attributes some of what I'm doing to him because I was fascinated by going on these interviews with him. And it was, I thought it was a great move as a parent to, to take me, you know. I, I got to meet, I didn't know who he was at the time, but Stephen Spender, this great poet, and spent an hour with him, and he's talking about T.S. Eliot and, you know, all these people that uh, were just in and out of his life. Mm-hmm. Ellie Wiesel was an astonishing experience to have one-on-one time with Ellie Wiesel. Wow. It was incredible to me. Has this inspired you even more so now that you've decided to do these oral history projects? You know, you're asking me a question that, you know, I'm beginning to understand in retrospect. I remember coming back from college and realizing that my father's gestures were the gestures that I use. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I thought they were mine. (laughs) And I think in, in retrospect, I can look at those chances I had to be on an interview with him and that kind of thing as, as being very, very important, you know, uh-huh. and, and foundational. He also introduced me to Studs Terkel when I was young. And how old were you when, I mean, how long a period did he take you with him and what was your age group during that time? I think it was, I went sometimes when I was in high school, but then when I was home from college. Old enough to yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Before that, he had been a Methodist minister when I was growing up, but then he went to, to the Sun-Times. Studs, he introduced me to Studs, and that was a big deal because I Division Street was out, and I just was totally taken with that. Mm. And I I remember trying to figure out why is this so fascinating to me? I don't even know these people. It's not like reading a celebrity interview, but it's so compelling to me. And that's why it's fascinating because you don't know the people. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Because if it's a celebrity, it's going to be stuff you've already heard in other interviews. Sure, sure. Partly that. Just these ordinary lives are just interesting. I have to attribute the fact that I want to talk to a sound person and a stage manager and all the people to the influence of studs, too. I, I have to think that's true because I think everybody has of, is of equal interest. So I don't want to load the book with Michael Shannon and Alan Arkin and celebrity interviews are people whose names you know. That's not what this is about. Sure. They all, like an ensemble, they all get kind of the same amount of space. I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit. If this were a different situation and you were coming to me in order to record a part of an oral history about something, what kind of question would you ask me to start off with? A lot of times I, I kind of start like Studs did. It's like, who are you kind of question. But a, a, a lot of times, I, I like to start with, uh, where did you grow up? Because it kind of warms the room, and it takes them back to a time, hopefully, that they, they kind of liked, and then we build from there. I really don't think about it in advance. It really grows organically out of whatever happens the moment we, we sit down. When I first started, I did have a list of questions, and it became very robotic, and mm-hmm. I would go from question to question. 
And I found that when I just abandoned that, we were actually having a conversation. Yeah, it takes it from interview to conversation. Yes. But now how do you apply that model when you have something as specific as the Alan Arkin uh, interview that you mentioned? How are you extemporaneous and conversational when it's he's given you things not to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really, really interesting question. I think I'm at a point, 300 plus interviews in, and a lot of the manuscript done, that I have a innate sense of what I need. That muscle is developed, point. yeah. <laughs> it, but it's, it's a matter of what I need now yeah. for the text. You see what I mean? Right. When I was first starting, there was there's these long, rambling interviews that you certainly couldn't put on the radio like Stud's hour-long thing on WFMT. But they did help me figure out what is the lay of this land and what are the landmarks and what are the things I need to... And then more and more and more, I could, I could focus it. When can we look forward to seeing this in some sort of print fashion or digital fashion? We're looking at hopefully spring of 2018. Oh, that's pretty soon. Yeah, tell me about it. Get get, get cracking. Come on, chop, chop. Are you going to do an audio book with it? I don't know. It just sounds like it would be a great thing for that because it it sounds like it's going to be so rich conversationally anyway. What I really would like to do is some video component that would go with it and go back to some of the key people and then film them. We talked a little bit about the possibility of filming some things earlier on. To me, it would totally change the interview, especially with actors. Well. You guys know about that. <laughs> yeah. If, if you get, Paul, you know about that, <laughs> right? I do. Yeah. It was not the kind of conversation I wanted to have. It oh. becomes a performance rather than a conversation. Sure. But I, I would love to do something like that. You, uh, as you say, you not only talk to actors, but you talk to artistic directors, sound people, stage crew people, Mm -hmm. uh, designers of all kinds, directors. You also interviewed a number of major theater critics. In fact, all of the major theater Mm -hmm. critics in Chicago, and then some, including uh, Richard Christensen. What did you glean from him in, in that interview, if you recall what he said to you? First through the sort of gauze of his Midwestern modesty, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, you try to give him credit for something as big as you really helped shape Chicago theater. Everybody I talked to says, without Richard Christensen, this would be a different place. And I said, you know, a lot of people are saying that. And he said, well, good for them. I mean, so there's, <laughs> you're finding your way through that. Yeah. But he didn't mean it with an attitude. But he does take great pride in things like he used the phrase, I shined a flashlight on these corners where people weren't going. He's the first one that really went to, as, as a major critic, went to Hull House Theater mm-hmm. and was seeing what Bob Sickinger was doing there in this little place when nobody was really going there. He went basically to everything. But there is that kind of egalitarian thing about Chicago where you go to see a, a small play at the dead, you don't know that that's not going to suddenly explode and right. find its way to, to New York. The American mm. Theater Company, the humans, right? You see that there for the first time. A few months later, I'm in New York, and there it is. So he was very modest in he's, his he's approach. He's very modest, it's like, very oh, gentleman. sounds like he views himself very much as like a conduit. You said shining a flashlight and presenting yeah. it to him. Yeah. You know. I think he understands his legacy. I really do. It's just immodest, I think, for him to talk about it. Well, it sounds like it's going to be an absolutely fascinating chronicle of the birth, the growth, and the continued burgeoning of the Chicago theater scene. I cannot wait to read it. Richard has a great book. It's called A Theater of Our Own, and he chronicles, he goes way back, 
and he brings it all the way up to what was the present at the time that he, he wrote it. But that's kind of the foundation that I've been working from. And that's out now? Book. Theater of Our yeah, Own? Yeah, it's been out for a while. Okay. Yeah. Theater of Our Own. Be a good companion piece to yours, though, to read the two of them. He yeah. said something in his, his foreword. He said, I see this only as a foundation. I, I hope it's a companion to it. it it's, a different ki- it's a different take on it. Well, I can't wait to see it in print in the spring. Yeah, me as well. It'll be a fascinating read. Uh, we usually end our podcasts with a segment called The Kiss of Death. Um, Great. Now, this is a tribute and a celebration of a life of someone who has recently passed. And uh, they could be famous or not famous. They could just be ordinary people. So we're going to talk about Shigeki Hinohara today. Do you know not who Shigeki? the Shigeki Hinohara. That very one. Of the Southampton Hinoharas? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Hinohara was a longevity expert. And he cautioned against gluttony in early retirement and vigorously championed annual medical checkups, climbing stairs regularly, and just plain having fun. Advice that helped make Japan the world leader in longevity. Well, he died recently in Tokyo. Dutifully practicing the credo of physician heal thyself, he lived to 105. Holy cow. He is one of the persons who built the foundations of Japanese medicine. Uh, He was born in 1911, when the average Japanese person was unlikely to survive past 40, and he never wasted a day defining the odds. I just read something recently that before 1800, no country in the world had longevity over 40 years. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no country in the world that has longevity under 40 years. So everybody, of course, is living longer. And in Japan, they they live long and very, very productive lives. He ministered Dr. Hinohara to victims of the firebombing of Tokyo during World War II. He was taken hostage in 1970 when Japanese Red Army terrorists hijacked a commercial jet. Uh, He was able to treat 640 of the victims of a radical cult's subway poison attack in 1995 at his hospital. He also wrote... A musical for children. Where do you find the time? (laughs) No, you know. (laughs) When he was 88 years old. And a best-selling book when he was 101. I have to quote Tom Lear here. Go for it. Which is, he says, it's people like this who make you realize how little you've accomplished. (laughs) Yeah, He said it's a sobering thought, for instance, that when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for four (laughs) years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dr. Hinohara recently (laughs) took up golf. Recently. (laughs) Until a few months ago, he was still treating patients, and he kept a date book with space for five more years of appointments. God love him. In the early 1950s, Dr. Hinohara pioneered a system of complete annual physicals called human dry dock. That was his expression, human dry dock, that has been credited with helping to lengthen the average lifespan of Japanese people. Women born there today can expect to live to 87, and men to 80. Do you know what the life expectancy in the U.S. is? No. By any chance? Uh, Any any thoughts? 72. Uh, U.S. men, 76. U.S. women, 81. Dr. Hinohara insisted that patients be treated as individuals, that a doctor needed to understand the patient as a whole, as thoroughly as the illness, and he argued that palliative care should be a priority for all terminally ill patients. He imposed few invaluable health rules, though he did recommend some basic guidelines. Avoid obesity. That seems like an obvious one. Take the stairs, which Mm. he did, two at a time. And carry your own packages and baggage, Paul. 
<laughs> you know me. You've got to get rid of that girl Friday. I do. Terry carries your stuff around. No more rickshaws for me. He also said, remember that doctors cannot cure everything. Don't underestimate the beneficial effects of music and the company of animals. Both can be therapeutic. Don't ever retire. But if you must, do it a lot later than 65. And prevail over pain simply by enjoying yourself. We all remember how his children, he once said, when we were having fun, we often forgot to eat or sleep. I believe we can keep that attitude as adults. It's best not to tire the body with too many rules, such as lunchtime and bedtime. Wow. He maintained a weight of about 130 pounds. His diet was Spartan. Coffee, milk, and orange juice with a tablespoon of olive oil for breakfast. I hear that's very good for you. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole butter coffee thing, the fat in the coffee thing. Milk and a few biscuits for lunch. Vegetables and a small portion of fish and rice for dinner. He would consume three and a half ounces of lean meat twice a week. Dr. Hinohara was born uh, in October of 1911. He decided to study medicine after his mother's life was saved by the family's doctor. His father was a Methodist pastor. How about that? How about that? In 1970, he was flying to a medical conference in Japan when his plane was hijacked by radical communists armed with swords and pipe bombs. He was among 130 hostages who spent four days trapped in 100-degree heat until the hijackers released their captives and flew to North Korea. I believe that I was privileged to live, he later said, so my life must be dedicated to other people. In uh, 2000, he conceived a musical version of Leo Bascaglia's book, The Fall of Freddie the Leaf. Have you read The Fall of Freddie the Leaf? No. This is about a leaf named Freddie, <laughs> clearly, who exists and lives on a tree. And he's got lots of other friends, and they're all leaves. And he asks and them all 36 questions. <laughs> yes. yes. And they all fall in love. And then they make a musical. It's a musical within the musical. It's a story of the moral of life and how the seasons change, and that at some point leaves fall and leaves die. And then new life springs up following that. This was performed in Japan and played off-off-Broadway in New York. He wrote scores of books in Japanese, including Living Law, Living Good, I like the name of that, which sold more than a million copies. Until the last few months of his life, he would work up to 18 hours a day. Using a cane, he would exercise by taking 2,000 or more steps each day. And in March, unable to eat, he was hospitalized, but he refused a feeding tube and was discharged. He died very peacefully at home. Dr. Shigeki Hinohara, longevity expert, 105 years old. That's a remarkable story. Isn't it? And all that makes sense, too. It all makes absolute common sense now. But when he was growing up in the 30s and 40s, these things were not taken for granted as ways to prolong your life. I saw Leonard Cohen in his last tour, and he was in Los Angeles, and he came up on stage, and he did the great, that subway baritone he has. And he said, uh, you know, last time I was here, um, it was about 12 years ago, I was just... uh, 72 year old with a dream (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed well i'm not quite that old but i have a dream and one of my dreams was to have mark larson on our podcast thank you for visiting booth one today so you're a fascinating guest and we loved your stories can't wait to read the book can we go to a website to find out more information about the book yes I believe that it's www.ensemble-chicago.com. 
Yes. And you can find out information about people that Mark has already interviewed, news about when this book will be published. And to clarify, it's a dash, not an underscore. So it's, it's ensemble-chicago.com. Paul, thanks a lot for sitting in oh, today. Oh, always so fun. Uh, it really is. You, you are a great addition to the show, and I uh, hope you enjoyed your time on Booth One today. Always do. Always do. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. You can go to our website at www.booth-1, Paul. <laughs> do you want to repeat that? How do you spell like W-O-N? <laughs> <laughs> it's the numeral. Yes. No, it's yeah. booth This booth is the winner. Ergo. For Mark Larson and Paul Strolley, this is your host, Gary Zabinski, saying thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.